for many nonprofits, it seems like just yesterday you actually started to use Facebook regularly or even have someone assigned to update your organization's Facebook page. And as for a Facebook strategy, well, that's one of those things that's kind of on the list, but it sort of never made it to the top, not to mention some larger digital strategy. Don't you feel like you're just starting to understand its power and then you open the paper or get online and read the news and bam, you read a story that makes Facebook sound downright dangerous, scary. So my mission with this podcast is to get nonprofit leaders answers. And I deal with dozens of nonprofit leaders in my consulting work and over a thousand nonprofit leaders at the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, my membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. So today's question is timely, and yet it probably will be one that will go on for some time. So I went looking for someone who could explain what's going on and what it all means for your organizations and what, if any, steps you could be taking right now. It's time to take a somewhat complex set of issues into something totally understandable. That's my kind of podcast. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She's here to help. Julia Campbell is the president of J. Campbell Social Marketing. She's a digital and online fundraising strategist. She increases the clarity, confidence, and capacity of nonprofits in the areas of social media, marketing, and online fundraising. She totally believes in what she does. She firmly believes in the power of technology and online tools to help nonprofits to tell their stories, to connect with stakeholders, and to advocate on their behalf. She understands nonprofits and the unique challenges they face. She's been a one-person development and marketing department, a volunteer, and a board member. Having spent her career in both nonprofit and public sector, she understands the specific obstacles that marketing and fundraising professionals face every day. Isolation, wearing those multiple hats on a single head, high expectations and increasing responsibilities, and, oh yes, lack of resources. And that is why she started her business, because she gets it. It's tough out there. Many of you do not have the money to employ full or part-time fundraising, certainly not marketing staff people. That's why she offers comprehensive training to get your social media efforts up and running and to prepare you to sustain these efforts after the engagement. You can find her at jcsocialmarketing.com, and over there you will find tons of amazing resources and knowledge, some of which she will share with you right now. Julia, thank you for joining us. Wow. Thank you, Joan. I'm really excited to be here. Um, Well, we're excited to have you. Um, Again, my podcast is about finding answers to questions, and we've got a big one for you today. So (laughs) I want to begin with the basics. Okay. Um, And here they are. So I want you to imagine for a moment a nonprofit leader, staff, or board who has been living under a rock for the last couple of months. Generally, they don't live under rocks, but let's assume they are. And um, they've just come out from under a rock, and they just decide. Maybe they had a big gala. They had a big gala, and they yeah. were completely <laughs> yeah, focused they on that. Or a board yes. meeting, maybe. Um, and so they, they've come out of, from underneath that rock, and they put this podcast on, and they're like, oh, there's a problem with Facebook? Oh, hey, I didn't know that. You get to tell them what's going on. Okay, in 30 seconds, it's it's, <laughs> no, you get it's more an incredibly in-depth issue. But 
how it started is a data firm called Cambridge Analytica, which was founded by Steve Bannon and Robert Mercer, scraped data from a bunch of Facebook profiles. It purchased data from another firm who had collected this data from Facebook. This is data that several million people willingly gave because they took a quiz on Facebook. But the main problem is that it also scraped data from profiles of their friends and their connections who did not explicitly give permission. So that's the headline. That's the news story. The analysis is Facebook's response was pretty tepid and pretty lukewarm, almost bordering on, you know, defensive and standoffish. They were not taking interviews. Now Mark Zuckerberg has done a few interviews. He's going to testify before Congress. He's being more forthcoming. But their basic attitude was you knew what you got into when you signed up for Facebook and sort of blaming all of us users and saying we were naive in thinking that our data was protected. So for me, the bigger question becomes, do nonprofits want to continue to align with this kind of platform that has broken trust with the public? And does this distrust transfer onto nonprofits? So that's sort of where I'm coming from when I talk to my clients and I I write about this topic. Okay. So I think um, the issue is clear, and that's what we're going to talk about. And um, I think it'd be really useful to go back just a bit to, into your sort of background. I love when I talk to podcast guests. So hold that thought okay. as you're deciding whether to move the incline on your um, treadmill up a couple of notches. <laughs> and let's let's go back with Julia, back to how she got involved in the world of social media, marketing, and online fundraising. So uh, in doing a little bit of homework on you, I understood that you started by wanting to be a journalist at Rolling Stone, living mm-hmm. a glamorous life. But did you, <laughs> but did you ended up at, Oh, how far I've come. <laughs> but ended up at the Peace Corps, and now you're in, in marketing. What the heck? Could you tell us a little bit about the trajectory? I find that always interesting. I like people to to meet the person I'm talking to. I think the common thread is that I've always loved storytelling and I've always loved collecting information and getting to the heart of the matter. So when I say I wanted to work at Rolling Stone, I wanted to write about rock stars and pop stars and travel the world and tour. But I also, I love their political journalism. I think that they still do really wonderful in-depth pieces on politics and current events and international relations and things like that. And I was really fascinated by that. I've always loved writing. I went to school for journalism way back in the 90s before social media which I am thankful for every single day uh, that I got to experience college without, you know, all of the apps and the social media um, landscape. But I joined the Peace Corps. I wanted to travel. I just wanted to experience the world. I've always wanted to travel and see other cultures and meet new people. And I'm very individualistic and I, I really like adventure. So that is kind of the common thread there that I guess kind of lead into marketing. I've just been a great writer. So I think when you join a nonprofit, especially before social media became so explosively popular, they're always looking for writers, people that can pitch to the press, people that can pitch themselves to funders, people that can get to that grain of a story that they can then turn into 
um, something for the masses or something for your donors and your supporters. And I was always able to do that. And I always really liked to do that. So I was a grant writer. I was a development director. Like you said, I was a one woman marketing development, kitchen sink, washing the coffee pot, everything but programs kind of person. And I loved doing that. And then when I went off on my own, what I was finding were, were that nonprofits really can't keep up with all of the changes in technology, but they also were getting hung up on the technology. And I know you probably see that, especially in your membership group where people come and they say, oh my God, I need to be on Instagram or I need to be on Facebook. And I walk them back a few steps and try to say, why, what are you trying to accomplish? How is this fitting in with your organizational goals? What is your message? What are the stories that you're trying to put out there? So for me, I feel like it's my mission to help nonprofits be better communicators. And then we select the tools, but they don't have the time to know what's going on with Facebook. They don't have the time to know that Twitter went to 240 characters. You know, they, they need experts that are kind of living it and breathing it every day to give them the essentials. I, I find background as a journalist to be an excellent one for yes. people who work in nonprofits. Most excellent for several different reasons. And tell me if you agree with this. I have al- yes. So I have always thought that fundraising, sitting down with somebody mm-hmm. and engaging them and inviting them to know more and do more for your organization is actually like investigative journalism. To, to try to figure out not like, you know, used car sales, but mm-hmm. like to figure out what makes this person tick and to see if there's a fit between mm-hmm. what makes them tick and what's ticking in my organization. Exactly. I, I also think, and my digital marketing strategist is really good at this. I believe that online digital marketing is a lot about investigative journalism too, in the sense that you're always digging to try to figure out sort of look at the information and what is it telling you? What's the story in the information? And I, so I, anytime I meet an executive director that has media background and for, I'm digressing for a second, Mm -hmm. but I just did a podcast with a woman named Emily Clem. She runs an animal shelter in Chicago, but she was a community organizer by trade. And when you're a community Mm -hmm. organizer, you go through a lot of media training and that's so important. She has become, and she had a media background. And so all of that has come to bear in her ability to be effective. And we were talking about the anatomy of a crisis in her organization and how she managed it. So this notion that somebody has media background, is a journalist, I, I just, I always think like when I work a room, everybody is yep. super interesting for at least three or four minutes. Right. <laughs> Okay. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Right. Exactly. So um, the journalism right. background makes all the sense in the world, given where you have where you have landed. I think that it the skills are really applicable. So when people find out that I did magazine journalism, they might say, "Oh, how does that translate to social media?" And it, I think that it set me up in the best way possible because I'm able to understand what a hook is, how to grab someone's attention. If you think about it, I mean, I was working for the school paper. I've been, I've worked on newspapers. You're always trying to get the attention of your editor. How do you do that? You find the best story. You find and tell the most relevant 
urgent, timely, interesting, unique story. And that is really what I try to do in my blog posts and my Facebook lives and all the content that I create is to help nonprofits understand that it is not Facebook. It is like more than the tool. It is the actual story that you have to tell that's going to resonate. If you don't have a great message and you're not interesting and you have nothing to share that is relevant or timely, it doesn't matter the tool. You could purchase $10 million in Facebook ads. It wouldn't matter. That's totally right. So, yeah. So, so before we dig into the, 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 the details of this, you know, sort of scandal, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I, you know, I spent some time on your site, and I saw these really great articles on the pros and cons of um, Facebook fundraising with mm-hmm. lots of how tos. Yes. And um, is it is it really possible for a nonprofit whose staff already wears ten different hats to learn everything there is to learn about how to maximize uh, social media platforms, most specifically Facebook? I I think that it depends where you're coming from and your strengths. So I worked with a very small food pantry. They had a part-time executive director there in Newton, Mass., the Center Street Food Pantry, and she loved social media. So she actually loved it, the executive director. She used it. She was on it all the time. And she it was her comfort level, and it was where she she just found community and spread ideas and heard about new ideas. So for her, it was just a natural extension of what she was already doing. But if it's something where you are going to have to completely relearn a new method of communicating, I do think it's challenging. One point that I will make though, is that social media is not a fad and it's completely revolutionized the way human beings communicate across Mm -hmm. the world. So it's not like a nice to do thing. It is, I mean, digital marketing in itself is a must do thing, but you can, you know, it's like eating an elephant. You can, you have to, how do you eat an elephant in little bites, right? You, you take a little bite here, you may meet your website, then maybe a few months later, you get your email up and running. Then maybe a few months later, you establish your Facebook page, What I find is that a lot of organizations suffer from social media overwhelm where there's so much coming at them and they feel like they have to know everything. You really don't. What you need to know, you need to know your audience, you need to know your story, you need to have that compelling, you know, that compelling reason for me to be involved with you and then just showcase your impact, like be authentic, be who you're meant to be and your people will find you. And I know, Joan, you talk a lot about that and I just really... I think that is so important. It's not about the tool and knowing every little which way to do it. The other thing I would say without going off too much on a tangent is that Facebook fundraising is going to happen whether you know about it or not. So people are going to fundraise for you or they're going to try to, because at the end of the day, it's not about what your organization wants necessarily. It's about what your donors want. And if I decide today I'm going to do a fundraiser for the Center Street Food Pantry because I want to donate my birthday. I'm going to find a way to do it. And you can be on board or not on board. So I think knowing a little bit about it and understanding the basics is important, but you definitely don't have to know the ins and outs and, you know, all of the different tech strategies to be successful. Isn't it also true? So there's two points I want to make in there somewhat related. So we we have a, we have a world, the nonprofit Mm -hmm. sector, is um, overrun 
with baby boomers who run mm-hmm. them, who are, you know, the, the, the trends, the data shows that we are going to have a significant leadership gap in the nonprofit sector as more and more boomers age out. Boomers aren't necessarily the most socially media savvy. So they don't value it in the same way. So that's one point I just was interested in your thoughts on. And the second one is because there is a lack of understanding about the level to which social media can mobilize and engage and help you to build what I call the army of the engaged Mm -hmm. for your organization, that they see it as a storefront, that there are just multiple kinds of storefronts where they can advertise their work and they totally miss the boat. So I guess I have two questions in that one little monologue. One is nonprofits led by people who don't understand social media and social media being used as a storefront. Absolutely. I I think those are both fantastic points. I would push back on the boomers argument a little bit because Pew Internet just released their social media report for 2018 and boomers are the fastest growing segment adopting social media platforms. So it's still not a significant percentage like it is with the 18 to 24 year olds. But I mean, every boomer that I know is at least on Facebook embracing Instagram. My mom was watching my Instagram stories the other day. I didn't even know she knew how to do that. (laughs) And I think it's, I think there's a a hunger there for community and connection and to be caught up uh, on what's happening. So I do think that it is, I think that it's increasingly being adopted. The other thing is that what I've seen nonprofits doing is educating their older donors. So for example, Road Scholar is an organization that I've worked with and they had a social media campaign. The problem was their demographic is 70 year olds and above. They wanted to have this social media campaign called age adventurously. And you talk about different ways that you are aging adventurously, like climbing a glacier or skydiving, whatever you're doing. And they set up a whole series of trainings on their blog about Instagram. What is Instagram? What is a hashtag? What is Facebook? Why should you be on it? What are the benefits? What are the pros? What are the cons? Um, They use it as sort of a value add for their constituents. So that's kind of one way to address that, that issue. Yeah, I thought it was very smart because then it really makes them even more of a go-to resource for their stakeholders and their donors. The other thing is the army of the engaged is absolutely the most important thing you could do. And I completely agree with you. The number one question that I receive probably is how can I automate all of my social media? You know, do I, do you use Hootsuite? Do you use Buffer, TweetDeck, HubSpot, whatever it is, it's all tools. Remember, it's not the strategy, it's the tools. And I just say, you can't, you know, there are certain things you can do that are automated. I certainly schedule tweets. I schedule certain promotions, but you have to be willing if you're opening the can of worms to go in and interact with people. I actually think to even bring it back to this Facebook scandal, I was talking on a Facebook live that I did a couple of weeks ago that I see it as an opportunity for nonprofits to reconnect with their online communities and talk to them and say, Hey, we're committed to never sharing your data or selling your data. And we want to push you to maybe join us on our email list because we own our email list. We control our email list. We don't own 
the data that's on Facebook. We don't control the data that's on Facebook. So we want to continue to engage with you here and we want to have a community here. But maybe, you know, if there's another way for you to, to come into the fold and it's, it's on our email list. So I almost saw the new breach of trust with Facebook as an opportunity for nonprofits. I just think we have this responsibility to even to just be better than brands and businesses and to be more ethically responsible and to talk about these issues, to not kind of sweep it under the rug. I mean, at least in my world, everybody is talking about the Facebook scandal. That might not be everyone else's world, but it's something that people are talking about. And I do think that if you have an active community, especially on Facebook, whether it's a group or a page, that it's a, it's a great way you can talk to a Facebook live Q and a, like, you know, this is what we get from Facebook. When we do a Facebook fundraiser, we don't get your information. You know, it's not the best, necessarily the best way for us to fundraise or, it is a great way for us to fundraise and this is why. So just being honest with your community about what's going on and talking, uh, just saying, you know, a little bit about what's going on, you understand their concerns and you're looking maybe for other alternatives to reach them. So, okay. So let me, let me grab onto that and say that approach is interesting, but it actually, um, it almost makes me more nervous about Facebook if I hear it. So, 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 oh, so, right. so think about this. If, you know, Steve. So, even if I let's say I don't live under a rock, you know, Steve, mm-hmm. Steve Bannon, Bannon harvesting private information from 50 million mm-hmm. Facebook users. You could say to me, you know, we can we can engage with you in a, a more effective manner if we have your email address. That makes me say. I should probably get the hell off of Facebook or um, are you actually encouraging nonprofits to kind of go back to the dark ages of fundraising? Well, I think that there's not really any way to go back, but I do think that there's become too, there's become inflated expectations about what social media can do in terms of fundraising. Almost, you know, set it and forget it. Like you said, set up a storefront and people are going to start buying. You don't have to do anything. You can just send out a few posts per week. And then, then you call me and you say, why isn't this working? So what, I mean, I don't really have very good news for you in terms of workflow, because I think that the old ways, not their old ways, they're never going to be old ways, but the traditional offline ways work. We know they work. We, we know that those are the best ways to raise large amounts of money. But if you're looking to, it depends on your goals. If you're looking to raise $10,000 really quickly from a, a brand new group of people in small increments via like a crowdfunding campaign, Facebook is probably going to be one of the tools in your tool belt. If you're doing a capital campaign and you need to get $10,000 donors, it's a little bit different. So I think that they're all, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. And you just need to really look at your organization, your capacity, your goals, and determine what's right for you. Um, with Facebook fundraising, it's a lot to manage. So I know some small organizations that are having really great luck with it, but also it's because they're a little bit younger, they're younger people managing it, and this is how they grew up. They grew up giving their credit card information to Facebook to, you know, they grew up with Google pay and Apple pay, and they're very comfortable with it. And this is how they interact with their friends. They say, Hey, this is a great cause. And they post about it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. So it's, it's almost second nature to them. 
So we need to listen to them, especially if we want to be bringing younger donors and younger people into our causes. I'm Obviously, you can't rely on them because they don't have a lot of money right now. But I think it's something to pay attention to. I just, I just don't want anyone to write anything off. And I don't want anyone to think that I am telling people, don't make phone calls, don't write handwritten thank you notes. I love when I get a handwritten thank you note. Can I just say that? I love that. I think it's amazing. Oh, I love when I get a phone call, even though I never answer my phone. <laughs> I get a voicemail. I love when I get a letter in the mail. No, Those I, handwritten, I think that the, the handwritten thank you note is the most underrated jewel. It is. I, uh, I have told this story before that I had um, my development director when I was at GLAD said, I, we ha- I would like you to write a handwritten holiday th- a thank you note on each holiday card. Because I didn't want to send coffee mugs. I just refuse to spend donor dollars on coffee mugs. And um, so I don't ski, but I took my kids skiing and I had a couple Irish coffees and sat at the bar by the fireplace and spent hours writing thank you notes. And I knew the donors well well enough to say, you know, I hope, uh, you know, Buffy the dog's leg is better or, you know, whatever it might be, right? And um, as it turned out, my my thank you notes arrived at the same time as another gay rights organization, coffee mugs arrived. And do you know how many thank you notes I got either A, to thank me for my thank you note and B, to thank me for not sending them a coffee mug. I don't want a coffee Uh, mug. I hate coffee mugs. I clean out my coffee mugs. Yeah. So I completely agree. But I do, I will say that I like those little online touches also that go along with the thank you notes. So you could, Joan, if you were still the executive director or the development director, go just take your phone and do a really quick, either a Facebook Live or even just a standalone video and say, hey, everybody, I was just thinking I'm overwhelmed by the support this year from our community. I think it's fantastic. Here's some highlights. Here's what we're doing. And just be really authentic in your thank you video. And it honestly costs nothing. It's on your phone. It takes two seconds. You might have to put on makeup or something to do that. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. I think the more authentic, the better then you put it on your Facebook page and those videos, those kinds of videos, or even just a little graphic that you create and put on your social media accounts, it all augments everything. So everything should be working together like an ecosystem. That's totally true. And the more touches that you give, the better. So I love that. I saw um, an organization, they were doing a, a, fundraising campaign, a local organization where I live, and they were popping champagne in their office because it was Friday at 5 p.m. and they hit their halfway mark and they read a list of names. They said, thank you so much, Chad and Julie and Mark and um, for donating in the last day. I mean, it was just, it was so great. I thought it was just in the moment you felt like you were sharing a moment with them. That's the power of Facebook really is a thank you note is fantastic and should will never be replaced. But that little in the moment glimpse, the behind the scenes, the human face that you see and that connection you make when someone is taking a video or taking a photo and sharing it publicly, that is that can be very powerful. I have been I work a lot with uh, when I coach uh, CEOs of nonprofits mm-hmm. about how to engage mm-hmm. their board members between board meetings and my new, mm. my new favorite piece of advice is don't write them a story in an email to share. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just put on your phone 
And this is, you know, a different way of using media, um, mind you. But you could also, of course, put it on Facebook and say, "Hi, this is this is Mary." And uh, oh, look, here comes, you know, uh, you know, Snyder, one of our dogs that's ready to be adopted. And I want to tell you a little quick story about mm-hmm. Snyder and about the work that we're doing currently at the shelter. And then you send it to them and you ask them, you make a request of them to share it with five people they think would benefit from the opportunity about knowing the, about the good work of your organization. doesn't even have to be, it doesn't even have to, it's, it, it probably shouldn't be an ask. It's just simply you thought this would uplift you no. and that, it, you know, I'm a board member. This, this video uplifted me and I thought it might uplift you as well. Think about what people share just in their own networks on social media or via email or just what you tell your, you know, you tell your partner about when they come home or you tell your kids about, you tell your friends, the uplifting, inspiring stories. So you're going to talk about the horror and the bad news. And But I find that if I, I see this in my own life, if there's a really inspiring, awesome story from like NPR or whatever, you know, the Boston Globe, because I live in Boston. I, first of all, compile a whole Pinterest board of them because I am addicted to storytelling, but I share it. I will share it and say, wow, this story made me feel really great. Nine times out of 10, it's about a nonprofit doing great work and goes back to the journalism hook of it, how to get in the the press. If you do, if you're doing really good work, that's timely and interesting, but I will share that story because I know that it will make my mom smile or it will make my friends happy or it will just make the people in my life just it will just make their day better. So I love that idea. I think that's fantastic. We are talking with Julia Campbell. Julia is the president of J. Campbell Social Marketing. She is a digital and online fundraising strategist. She works in the nonprofit sector, helping them to confront the unique challenges that they face. She has a lot of experience, not just as an online fundraiser, but as a one-person development and marketing department, a volunteer, and a board member. She has amazing knowledge and resources at her site at jcsocialmarketing.com. So let's add, let's move on to a couple of other questions, and maybe we go. We should go back to people love to talk about scandal, so why don't we go back to talking about the scandal <laughs> for a few minutes? Um, let's say that it really hits the fan, that we find out, um, that we find out that the, um, the breaches are extensive, that people uh, making Facebook payments, their personal data is really compromised. Um, to what extent would you say the nonprofit using the tool kind of owns some responsibility or is it so systemic that to some degree nonprofits or any of us can't be held accountable? Well, I think that if you are a nonprofit purchasing Facebook ads right now, then you're complicit in the data sharing because that's what Facebook is about. That's their business model that they give free access to this amazing tool that is supposedly connecting all of us and making the world a better place. And in return, they harvest user data. You, you know, we all, sign up to Facebook. We know it's free. We click that little box. I think more and more it's becoming, um, I think Facebook is starting to realize that telling people it's their responsibility is not working anymore. It's not cutting it because there are almost 2 billion people on the platform. It's become Mm -hmm. such a behemoth. But I, I just think we, we, the nonprofits cannot be held 
responsible, especially if they're employing ads and using that data for their own ad- advantage. So they, I mean, they they do need to be held a little bit accountable is what I meant to say. So it's hard to say. If you're also, if you're using Google grants, if you are using Twitter ads, if you're using any kind of advertising online, that that requires user data to serve the ad to the right person. So if you're an organization that completely feels like that is ethically irresponsible, then don't purchase ads. You can certainly be on the platforms and use the free services. But if you feel like this, this whole, you know, if you feel like Facebook has completely breached all of our trust and we don't, you know, you don't think that it's responsible in the use of user data then don't purchase Facebook ads. I think I would just say that. I don't know. It's that's what we're that's what we're talking about. That's where the conversations with Mark Zuckerberg and what he's saying and what Facebook is bringing up publicly. That's where we're going to have to start paying a lot of attention and have these really in depth conversations with ourselves and with our board and with our users, there's, with our there's stakeholders. Two things that that strike me about what, what you just said. Um, one is about transparency with, I mean, and you mentioned that earlier. So I, mm-hmm. I have an obligation to that army of the engaged to share with them about how I use social media. The more I educate them about yes. that, mm-hmm. the, the, I mean, really, you know, we're talking about building a relationship. That's why you put that video up that says, thank you, Chad, or we're popping yes. champagne because we just got a grant. Um, right. That's about relationship building. Mm-hmm. And th- there is no part mm-hmm. of an experience between a nonprofit and stakeholders, be they volunteer, staff, board, or donors, that can't be about that. It has to be about that in order mm-hmm. to sustain those relationships. So one thing I'm hearing about is transparency. I think Absolutely. the other question that people have is, is, is Facebook going to take a, is there a possibility that Facebook could take such a drastic hit mm-hmm. that people start to delete their, they say, I'll just, I'm just getting off of Facebook altogether. They're thereby reducing the power and influence that Facebook has for nonprofits to be able to do the kinds of things it does do. This is a really interesting question because I was just listening to a news report from the New York times. And they said, even if a hundred thousand people shut down their accounts, that's less than one-tenth of 1% of Facebook's user base, U.S. user base. So it would have to be so dramatic an exit that Facebook would sit up and notice. I think that Facebook is sitting up and noticing now because they've been in the news. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't usually talk to the press. He's giving interviews. They're writing blog posts. They are being a little bit defensive. I think that's going to have to change. But I do not see a mass exodus from Facebook. The other point I want to bring up is that young people really are not having a problem with any of this. From what I've seen, from who I've been talking to, Facebook groups I'm in, they think it's all conflated. They think it's overblown. They've lived their life with digital ads and people collecting their data and with Alexa and Google home and their phone and their GPS and their location services. And, you know, face, um, what's it called? The face technology Uh uh to locate your face on your friend's Facebook profile. They have lived with all of this and they are suggesting it's a part of their life. Are you suggesting that, that, that the notion that this, this data has not been protected is, is, is no big 
no big surprise to them. They just sort of assume that they're, because there's a part of me that just sort of says, well, mm-hmm. you know, anybody like, like it comes with the territory of being on social media. There's some part of me that says it kind of comes with the territory of being on social media that people know a ton more about me than I'm probably right. at all comfortable thinking about. So I don't really think about it, but the advantages of that social right. media platform for me, either as self-expression or connecting with my niece's kids or marketing and trying to engage people through my nonprofit right. Facebook page, those, those are advantages that outweigh mm-hmm. a culture I have grown up in. And I'm 60 where I just sort of assume so many more people know so mm-hmm. much more about me that if I knew ha- the habit, like it would frighten me half to death, but I just don't mm-hmm. think about it. And I wonder if there's mm-hmm. some of that at play. Absolutely. There's really two main opinions at play. One is what you said. It's not really an opinion. It's just sort of a mindset that we have where if you have a smartphone with location services turned on, your phone knows where you are at all times. I don't necessarily have a problem with that because of the convenience <laughs> of being able to use GPS, being able to locate a Starbucks when I need it. You know what I mean? Just being able to, just being able to find a gas station when I need it. So for me, oh, also Google sent me my daily report or my monthly report. It, it told me how long, how many miles I walked, which I didn't even know that it counted my steps. It told me how many hours I spent in the car which was an un, I've spent 45 hours in the car, which is insane. insane. And it told me all of these other things. And I, it really, even for me, someone that puts a lot out there publicly, it was a little alarming. We have Google home in our house and we love Google and I have Google phone, but it was, uh, I was, I was a little bit taken aback almost um, because all I could think of was if someone, what if something happened and someone was stalking me and they got access to that information. I mean, that's an extreme scenario, but I, I do think that we're getting more aware of privacy breaches and where our data is. And Facebook responded to that because they posted this whole blog post. I'll, I'll send you the link to it where it shows you how you can look at what kind of data Facebook has on you. Because if you've been on there for, I've been on there for almost 10 years, I think, or more than 10 years. I can't even imagine what kind of data Facebook has on me. So you can look at what it has on you and what apps you've connected to it. You know, if you log into like Spotify or you log into um, other applications with Facebook, you can actually see how advertisers target you. It's pretty fascinating for someone like me, but it might be terrifying for other people. So we are coming to a boiling point where people individuals, unfortunately, because the businesses are not going to do it for us, we have to become more vigilant and understanding what kind of data we're sharing. And we have to just be really secure in our, you know, we have to really be comfortable with those, you know, with the data that we're sharing, or we do have the option. I mean, I, I really don't think it's an option for a lot of us, but we do have the option to kind of go dark and, you know, delete Facebook altogether. That is an that is an option. It's not the most appealing one, certainly for many people. But you know, we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. Right. I think we do have more of a responsibility as individuals to understand that these 
big corporations, they don't have our back. They don't have our nonprofits back. They don't have certainly the users back at this point. So understanding what that means and the implications and then figuring out our own personal strategy for that. Two final questions before we wrap. Um, one of them is, um, uh, so social media is clearly more than Facebook. And mm-hmm. uh, so I guess I, I want to wrap two questions in one, and then I want to talk about uh, marketing as overhead because I'm just kind of fascinated by this concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best, most cost-effective social media vehicles with the highest returns for nonprofits. Can you talk about that a little bit? And also, and, uh, as it relates to that, what do you actually need in order to have effective social marketing? And here I'm really talking about resources rather than, I mean, we've talked a lot today about storytelling and the power of social media to tell stories. And that is, mm-hmm. you know, that is all, you are all over that with your resources and materials and your book. Um, but I'm also just interested in sort of this notion of um, how to how to execute a good social media strategy when you're a relatively small nonprofit and how to make the most of social media sort of with highest returns for the least, presumably if you're small, for the, for the least amount of effort. Okay. I think, I think, I know that <laughs> some questions that you need to ask yourself, you need to do a little bit of an audit, almost like a capacity audit before jumping on a new platform because they are all different. So they all have different strengths and weaknesses. I believe firmly that each platform should be looked at like a different country. It has a different language, different etiquette, different manners, different things that work, different things you should look out for. So it does really depend on what you're trying to use it for. But the the way you get the most bang for your buck out of social media is you need to be consistently creating unique content. So do you have the ability to do that? It's a, it's a beast. It's never satisfied. Do you have the ability to curate content that is relevant to your audience and interesting to your audience? For example, my Twitter, I love Twitter and I would say 75% of what I share are resources that are not mine. So blog posts that I like, podcasts that I like, news articles that I like, things that I think will help my audience. So you have to be audience centric in that way. Mm -hmm. But then the other, there's some other questions you have to ask. Can you manage comments? Can you manage direct messages? If you open the can of worms, you have to have a strategy around how are you going to create the content, but how are you going to interact and not just kind of set it and forget it. So that's, that's sort of, that's why Facebook I think is so appealing because it is the easiest to use. It's the, you know, it's pretty much the standard. It's the king of social media. It's the most popular one It's the most adopted by the older generation. So Facebook probably is the place you, you may want to start out. Um, I think Twitter is perfect if you're an organization doing advocacy and you want to share breaking news and you want to comment on current events and you want to connect with media and reporters. That's what Twitter is really good for. If you're just sharing information about your local fundraisers, Twitter is probably not the best place. Instagram is very heavily visual. So if you have if you work with animals, if you work on a farm, if you work with a museum or a library or historic society, something that you can translate visually, Instagram is is really wonderful for that. 
And my two pillars of content creation, the only things you should be sharing on social media are number one, um, stories of your impact, stories of what you do. It could be your staff. It could be board members. It could be volunteers. It could be clients. Stories of what you do to show people the impact and your accomplishments and also to highlight your mission and the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And then the other pillar, become a go-to resource in your space. I just think nonprofits shy away from this particular pillar of content, and I'm not sure why. So if you're dealing with, if you are a food pantry, you're dealing with food deserts, you know, food insecurity, be the go-to resource for me. If I care about that issue, I want to know what's going on in the world. I want to know what's going on in the state. I want to know what's going on in the community. I turn to you to be that trusted resource for me, that thought leader. So, so true, true, yeah. so, so true. Yeah. I talk to this, I talk to uh, nonprofit leaders all the time that they don't even do this with their boards. Oh, no. Right? They go to these meetings, and at no point is a board member who has raised his or her hand to say, I care about homelessness. Yep. And, and in a course of, you know, six annual six board meetings in a course of a year there's never an article that's shared there's never somebody mm-hmm. who comes in to the boardroom to say mm-hmm. i want to you know i'd like to give you a sense of what the trends are in the sector of homelessness in yes. this community or this state that that's part of the part of the reason that people are connected to your organization is they 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 consider that issue really important and they mm-hmm. want to understand it better Absolutely. Smart, smart, smart. That's part of the curated. That's also part of the curated content too. Mm-hmm. Is, is you don't have to be creating all this yourself. There are no. experts out there. There are other people that can help you. Right. A great, a great article about the sector is something you can throw in your in, in your Facebook feed that, in fact, me, makes liking your Facebook page valuable to them because that shows up in their newsfeed and it's something Mm -hmm. that will enrich their experience and understanding of a sector they already care about enough to have been engaged with you to begin with. Exactly. Last question. Last question. So, So, this is a pet peeve of mine, digital marketing, your social media presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I hear all the time from nonprofits who say, I cannot get funding to do this because it is seen as marketing, which is seen as overhead. Mm-hmm. And I believe, and I've got Dan Pallotta coming up on a, uh, on a podcast. Oh, I love well. him. He's from near where I live. Yes. And I have known him a long time. So, you know, so Dan, Dan is the guy trying to be the, the overhead myth buster. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't think social media is overhead. I actually think it's program. Mm-hmm. And I think it's program because part of any organization's mission is to, use, I'm going to use my phrase again, is to build an army. Yep. And that mobilizing people to take some kind of action, let's say you're lobbying for a law or you're litigating a case and you want people to care about it so you can try it in the court of public opinion. There is not, I mean, first of all, we can talk all day about what overhead means, but, but that's to build your power and influence using a tool like this is pure, unadulterated program work to me. And I don't know if nonprofits are just not 
framing it that way or funders are not hearing it that way. But this is a big issue for me because I just feel like people are not understanding what this, what social media is really about for a nonprofit mm-hmm. organization. I think it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of nonprofits not framing it correctly and funders not understanding it. And it might be that age gap that you talked about, people that are not digital natives that haven't grown up with this type of communication that don't necessarily understand the power and the potential of it for nonprofits to mobilize their communities. I believe when done well, that social media is actually very cost effective because if you're constantly one person trying to get reach and trying to get attention for your cause all of the time, that's not cost effective. That's not going to work necessarily if it's only you and your organization posting about it. The potential with social media is that, like you said, you, I love that term, the army of the engaged. I talk about them as an army of storytellers, people that are going to share your story for you. I also think it's never a waste of time to be showcasing your impact and building deeper connections with people. And that is how you should be using these channels. Um, donors, you know, what don't the two things donors want to hear, they want to see evidence of impact, they want to know where the money went. That's what you can be showcasing all day. You could do it all day on social media. Um, but I do think there's this misconception that social media is like a billboard. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it's it's just sort of like putting something up there and then advertising your event and hoping you're going to get ticket sales. It's not looked at as an actual revolution in the way human beings interact with each other. And that's how it should be looked at, in my opinion. And with that last opinion, we are really out of time. Mm-hmm. You, if you enjoyed what Julia had to say, please go visit her Her uh, at J csocialmarketing.com. Did I get that right? jcsocialmarketing.com, correct? Excellent. Yes. Resources, all kinds of resources, great blog. Um, this is something everybody in the nonprofit sector needs to really know more about. And Julia is the go-to. So Julia, thanks a lot for joining mm-hmm. me. I really appreciate it. I found it very interesting, both on the sort of the Zuckerberg Facebook scandal and the larger issues as it relates to how social media can be such an incredible asset to the nonprofit sector. So many, many thanks. Thanks again. I really enjoyed it. So always join me at joangary.com with two R's. Subscribe to my blog. And until next time, thank you so much for everything you do to fix this world of ours in ways big and small. Thank you so much. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com. Reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary. Or pick up her book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership.